Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Leaders in Critical Care, a special podcast series led by our section editor on pulmonary and critical care medicine, Dr. Jasbal Singh. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Welcome, everybody. I'm Jaspal Singh. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician in Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm the medical director of critical care education, and I'm involved in several societies uh, within critical care, including CHEST, ATS, and Society of Critical Care Medicine. Uh, with me today is this first episode in a series of Women Leaders in Critical Care with Consultant 360. We have a couple of great leaders as featured in our first episode here. Uh, first with me is uh, Dr. Asha Devereaux from San Diego, California. Asha, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And so, Asha, can you uh, kind of give us a brief description of your background and uh, tell us about yourself a little bit? Well, just Paul, I don't know where to begin. Um, I am an adult pulmonary uh, physician practicing um, in Coronado, California. I feel very fortunate. Um, my background is of um, and pulmonary critical care is I'm a former uh, Navy trained uh, pulmonary critical care physician. I served 11 years active duty service and I always say that the Navy issued me a husband and two kids and they became my priority and that's why I transitioned into the civilian world. Um, and uh, since that time I've been in private practice for the last um, 18 or 18 years. I uh, past president of the California Thoracic Society and have um, a whole slew of other extracurricular activities. Well, that's great. Thanks for joining us today. And also, I have with me uh, Dr. Mangala Naram Simran. Uh, Mangala, you want to introduce yourself? Yep. Thank you, Jessica. Um, I'm Mangala Narsimhan. I work in New York. I work for Northwell Health, which is a large healthcare system with 23 hospitals in it. I'm the director for critical care services for that system. I also run the acute lung injury and VV ECMO center that we have uh, where we take care of 40 to 50 uh, acute lung injury patients on VV ECMO every year that we bring in from other parts of the city. Um, and I have a very active role in CHEST. I work, uh, I'm the chair of the live learning subcommittee. I'm on the education committee. And for the last 20 years, I've been teaching point of care ultrasound do chest uh, all over the world and uh, helping to bring point of care to the bedside for critical care doctors everywhere. So that's what I do. Well, that's a fantastic segue from both of you. So thank you so much. Um, I know both of you have been, been very involved in not just at your local areas, but also sort of on the national level, uh, helping us with pandemic planning. And we're going to kind of go quickly to into COVID-19. Obviously, it's been uh, sort of a um, massive change of how we all work in critical care, especially. And, um, and I'm just going to talk, ask you both about sort of your role in early the plan pandemic planning and operations and what things you, you've been sort of experiencing, doing, and learning about, and um, including some of your biggest challenges and contributions. So, um, uh, Asha, I'll start with you, uh, if you don't mind talking to us about all that you're doing. Thanks for that question. Um, and, and the answer goes back to actually 9-11, um, at which time I was the, my platform was the ChemBio isolation unit of the hospital ship Mercy. 
And at that time, there were only two of us who knew kind of what to do with biological, chemical, radiological injuries in a mass critical care setting, landing in the ICU, um, for which um, we had, you know, always maintained readiness and training, uh, which is what the military does. And so following 9-11 um, and my uh, transition to the civilian world, I realized that that level of readiness was not present in our, our hospital systems or really our country and, and that thought process. So that, um, I was fortunate, was absorbed by the leadership of the ACCP at the same time ATS and SCCM were also forming similar committees. Interestingly, there were probably only about 10 of us interested in that topic. And so we all became members of the same committees for each organization. And I think we all can agree that we all tend to, because we are all members of all those three organizations, we all tend to be uh, sharing knowledge that way similarly. So that led to Two, set of, uh, two sets of consensus documents on pandemic preparedness and uh, mass critical uh, care for disasters. Um, uh, the subsequent one on, in 2014 involved over 180 participants from all over the world. And that led to some foundational preparedness documents that um, aren't perfect as we are now learning in our um, current environment. I think, um, but they did serve to help with surge preparedness for ICUs and getting everybody's mindset on a topic that people don't commonly think about. So it was great to be able to um, have something that um, had kind of gotten buried by the wayside because so many other things are uh, keeping everybody occupied on a day-to-day -day basis, but now everybody um, is speaking in the literature Surge, staff, space, um, stuff, all the acronyms that we had come up with. So it's nice to um, have that language now reflect back on us. Um, so um, that was part of our early role. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, that's a great contributions right there, just kind of getting network and getting some of the fundamental um, multi-society collaboration and teams together. That's phenomenal leadership. Uh, thank you for uh, sort of uh, being like really spearheading that. And, um, and the other thing, can you talk a little bit about your work with this um, sort of weekly or biweekly call that you arrange with multi-societies? I think a lot of people have benefited from that, if you don't mind kind of where that, talking about where that came from, how that generated and um, how that's going. So I am a former chair and um, co-chair of the Task Force for Mass Critical Care. And that generated um, following um, a meeting at, at the CDC. And the history of that is we, um, we were in a room. I invited on um, flu, the faces of flu, and how how to prepare for, you know, mass influenza. Um, so to, uh, for pandemic preparedness. And um, Mike Osterholm was in the audience and so many other people were. But... Uh, only about one-fifth of the audience, or even a tenth, were practicing clinicians. And Dan Hanfling was in the audience. And suddenly, we all had raised our hands as 
it was a CDC meeting. We were the only ones who had, were clinicians. We kind of found ourselves in a corner all talking to each other saying, this is a big deal. Um, and right then and there, we all generated this idea that we all needed to get together the American College of Emergency Physicians and the American uh, Association of Trauma Surgeons, and that whenever something happens in a mass casualty or a mass pandemic, we, we need multi-societal co- collaboration as well. And so that led us to, led me to bring that idea back to ACCP who helped with getting the minds together and um, and now we formed this task force for mass critical care. Um, in many ways, it's independent now of, of one organization because we want it to be multi-societal, um, but it also is, um, it's that group that had been early thinkers on this um, and trying to realize that um, we can't do things differently in a pandemic. Um, uh, otherwise, it will be chaos. And that was the purpose of um, how we had formed initially. And to wrap our heads around surge, how to do it uniformly so that it's fair, so that people can't you know, fly across state lines to get, so to speak, a ventilator. Um, and how people can be treated fairly in allocation decisions. Well, that's fantastic. Important concepts that we've all kind of, um, I think, benefited from and are learning about and are learning it collectively. So um, that's a fantastic series. I enjoy being on those calls whenever I can, um, when I'm not busy in the trenches. And speaking of which, goes to our spe- second guest, uh, Dr. Mangala Naran Sumran. Um, Mangala, talk, you guys were in New York City thrust at the center of this pandemic uh, early on from the United States side. And I can imagine, I cannot imagine the chaos that you kind of went through and talk to us about kind of, I know it's a, a big blur, I imagine, about kind of what it, what started, kind of what you learned and how things are progressing. Sure. Um, unlike Asha, who has been planning for years and well-prepared, I was thrown in the deep end, definitely. Um, and so it's March and we're hearing all of these things that are happening in Italy and our health system is having multiple meetings trying to prepare for what's coming. Uh, and we're having conversations with the Italian doctors and uh, had a, a group call with the Chinese doctors just trying to understand what they were seeing so that we could be ready for it. And in my hospital system, everyone is sort of talking, but no one really understands the magnitude of what's coming. And we're starting to prepare, but nobody's thinking about the ICU. And I'm jumping up and down saying, where are we going to put patients? What isolation rooms are we going to use? Thinking that we would have some patients, but no idea what was coming. So part of that planning committee, I, I, I finally convinced them that the ICU needs to be part of it. Uh, we had a um, an EOC structure, and it was very sort of military-like um, in, in structure. Each hospital had a command center, and then we had a central command for the entire health system. And then the surge starts, and we start hearing patients coming in. We're sort of, you know, watching it. And in the first week of the surge, we start to get a ton of patients. We're filled up an ICU. We have to open another ICU in all of our tertiaries. We're hearing overhead that there is a rapid response and an anesthesia stat about every 20, 25 minutes that they're intubating somebody. Uh, we were very nervous about um, non-invasive at that time. We didn't really know if our PPE was going to work. So if patients failed 
non-rebreather or failed, you know, large amounts of oxygen, uh, the next step was to go to intubation. So there were intubations left and right. Uh, we were filling up ICUs on a 24-hour basis with 20 patients in each unit. And within two weeks, we were up to 150 intubated patients in our tertiary sites each uh, at each site um, and trying to find people power to cover those those units. So you could imagine that we had the PACUs, we had any open space that we could uh, convert it into ICU rooms. Um, and we were trying to take stable med surge patients and put them in tents, put them in auditoriums, put them in any open space. The cafeteria was turned into a, a, an IC, uh, a med surge space. Um, and we had big open units with 40, 50 intubated patients in a row. And we would run vent rounds where they would be a hospitalist running the show and the ICU docs would come through three times a day, round on the vents and move on to the next patient um, just to make sure that the vent management was done properly. But we all know that that is not standard of care for an ICU patient and an ICU patient is so much more than the vent management. I mean, these were sick, sick patients who had a lot of renal failure, multi-organ failure, were coding and crashing left and right. Um, so it was uh, quite the endeavor. At our max, we were up to 900 critical care patients in our health system. Uh, normally, we run a max around 350. So you could imagine what this was doing to our community hospitals. Uh, we had hospitals in Queens that were epicenters where people were, you know, waiting to get into the emergency room and, and dying waiting to get in. So we were taking those patients right from the ER and transferring them to our less busy hospitals in other regions of New York. So that really uh, made a big difference. Um, I was trying to keep my head above water, just trying to get staffing together for all of these places that needed it, trying to move patients to less busy places. Um, and just trying to keep abreast of what was happening next. Um, but it, we took care of about a total of about 3,000 critical care patients from, through March and April um, and about 8,000 in the health system in general. So you can imagine uh, the chaos that that created. It was like a tidal wave of patients. It just was, it is a big blur, as you said. In this, at the same time, I was trying to, I was worried that this was going to happen everywhere and we were just the beginning of it. Uh, trying to get the word out as to what was going on so that my colleagues through CHEST and other places could get a head start to get ready for their preparations. So trying to get on as many uh, webinars as I could saying, hey, you need to be prepared, you need supplies, you need ventilators. I mean, we were running out of ventilators and every day at four o'clock would have a phone call saying, okay, this hospital is a hot spot today and we're likely going to need more ventilators. Let's move them to a less hot spot area from a less hotspot area to here, just trying to get them in a truck every night and move them to where they needed to go because we were down to about 20 to 30 ventilators at the height of it um, for the whole health system of, of thousands of patients. So just trying to keep on track with that, trying to keep track of, we ran out of paralytics, we ran out of antibiotics, we ran out of a lot of sedatives that we were using. Um, and these patients were long stays. They were at least staying in the ICU for 14, 15, 16 days on average. So once they were in, you, you had a bed that was gone for two weeks um, and you had to keep making space and making space. So it was um, crazy. I was trying, we were, I was on a New York City group where, of medical directors where we would speak every day and 
definitely, we saw this about a week before every other hospital in New York saw it. So I kept saying, it's coming, guys, it's coming, guys. And and everybody was like, yeah, yeah, Northwell's crazy. Like, you know, why are they so busy? And suddenly the rest of New York City got, got hit as well. So um, it was an interesting time. I think it taught me uh, to make plans on my feet to keep things moving, to make quick decisions, even if they were not always well-informed because we didn't have any information at that time. Um, and we really did our best to keep our, our doctors safe, to keep the, the staff safe, and to do the best we could to take care of our patients. I still think that had we had those patients one-on-one the way that we do today in, in regular units where critical care doctors were taking care of every one of those patients, I think the mortality rates would have been very different. And I think that looking back, you know, that's what sort of haunts me thinking about it because we did have so many patients who would have gotten a different care had it had it been today that they were coming into the hospital. So um, that overwhelming uh, of the system really, really does change outcomes um, and made a big difference in how people did uh and uh, I think that is what we have to look to prevent. And I know that's what's happening in other parts of the country now. And, and I really feel that uh, we had the advantage in New York that no one else was surging and we could ask for help. And we got help from Utah and from South Dakota. Like all these people came to help us um, weeks into it, uh, uh, but they did come. And we can't offer that help back right now because we're going right back into a surge as we speak. So. It is a different time right now with lots of different places surging, but I think the interaction with chest uh, kept my head above water because I kept thinking, okay, there's everyone else out there is okay. We can still get help from people. Um, and I was able to give information at, which was very, very important to me to say, guys, I'm more like this is coming. Um, and I think the interaction with the other medical directors in New York City kept me sane because, you know, everyone was dealing with the same shortages and the same um, PPE worries and things like that. So we could at least speak to each other openly and honestly and get advice from each other as to what people were doing and change our, our um, medical guidelines based upon a group think instead of a one person think. So all of these um, activities and, and thoughts uh, really did help, but it was a very overwhelming time of just rounding on 30 and 40 patients a day, which is what we were all doing at that time. Wow. That's a that's a quite a story. Um, I can't imagine what that's like, and you know, and um, it's a nice segue into the next part. Um, I think both of you, uh, just to review, um, Asha, thanks for all the sort of the background work and all your military background and sort of preparation of the pandemic, and then refining these materials for a broader audience, multi-society collaboration, and then Mangala for your leadership and sort of helping us not just in your local institution but also spreading the word. I'm a big fan of your publications. I mean, we've been reading your stories and sort of learning from that those lessons and that helped us prepare as well. So thanks for taking the time to contribute to those uh, both in webinars, but also writing the publications down. Um, taking that to the next sort of, I think Mangala, you did a nice job introducing the next part of this topic, which is, you know, we're, in, we're entering a, no, a whole new unknown phase of this pandemic. I know people think it's the same thing going through, but I think all of us think we're in the front lines are saying this is different, um, that things are a little bit different now uh, at this next wave comes through. Um, and I was just kind of curious as to lessons you've learned, things you're doing this time around um, that um, you want the audience to know about. Um, I think it would be very helpful um, is what you're doing this time. And I'll start with Mangala first. Um, I think the advantages that we have this time is that we have a lot less patients so we can handle them um, in a different way. We have 
critical care doctors that know how to work ventilators, uh, taking care of every one of these patients and, and meticulously following ARDSNAC guidelines and, and all of that. I think there was a lot um, in the beginning that we did not know in March and April. We didn't know what treatments would work. Everybody was guessing. There was a lot of stuff out on the internet as to the magic cure and, and this is a different ARDS and all of the stuff that would come back to us. And every hospital, every ICU wanted to do things a little bit differently and thought they had the right answer. And some were giving tocilizumab and some were giving steroids and some were giving um, remdesivir and et cetera. Like there was no uniformity of anything. So we have some randomized controlled trials. We know that dexamethasone in this patient population works. We know what doesn't work and we're not hurting people with those things anymore. We saw a lot of secondary bacterial infections that people died from as a result of all the immunosuppression that we were giving them um, in March and April. So we know what not to do. Um, we're approaching patients in a much more standard, uniform way that this is what we're doing. Um, we're using a lot more non-invasive now. Um, we're using high flow, we're using uh, CPAP bi-level, and we are uh, using AVAPs in some patients. Um, so we're not afraid to do that. We know that our N95s are working. Um, uh, it, remarkably, our doctors did not get sick in March and April, so that's very reassuring the second time around that we can use non-invasive safely. Um, so we've been keeping people out of the ICU by doing that, and we found that that makes a big difference. And the people who are intubated, we're really following classic ARDS guidelines, and, and we're really trying to do great vent management. And there is no magic uh, to this. This is just daily meticulous care of patients. And I think all of those things put together, a uniform approach, non-invasive, using steroids, um, not using a lot of these other drugs that we were using has changed uh, things dramatically. We're keeping people out of units. We have space for patients to take care of them. Um, and patients are being discharged from the hospital after a week on high flow rather than um, three weeks of intubation and, you know, pneumothoraces and barotrauma and fibrotic lungs. So uh, we have learned a lot. Uh, I think that... Um, that this will help the rest of the country going through this. Uh, and we have the benefit of time and uh, quite a few good randomized control trials. That's very helpful. So kind of just to recap, so better treatments, better capacity management, uh, better science, uh, more familiarity. And I think you probably, you probably wanted to mention um, better understanding of the PPE or the personal protective equipment uh, and the stores related to that. I think there's a lot of madness early on in this, obviously, and it's still some madness yes. in some parts of the country. Yes. Um, but I'm going to yes. switch gears a little bit. One thing we didn't, well, I'm a little bit nervous about, you kind of alluded to a mongol early, and I'm going to push to Asha here. Asha, you have a lot of interest in sort of the workforce issues and wellness and burnout. And um, I know we've talked about this many times in the past. Um, I'm a little bit nervous about the capacity of the human capacity. And I don't know, Asha, what are you seeing and what are you sensing? What are your thoughts on the human capacity of what the pandemic this time around? Um, uh Thank you for that question, and, and it's very important. But I want to also thank Mangala for her candor in sharing everything and ringing the bells for all of us, um, and because those experiences did inform the rest of us. And so um, I think it's, it can't be understated um, being honest about what went right, what went wrong. And so in that same vein, we do have a similar issue with uh, staffing across the country, um, as Mangala mentioned. Um, in California, um, we have an organization called the CalMAT, which I'm one of the 
Southern California senior medical officers for. And and we are healthcare providers responding to disasters throughout our state, similar to the NDMS state uh, system for DMAT, um, which it's been modeled after. Uh, we're one of the only states that have our own workforce, there may be one other. Um, and for us, in terms of staffing, this has been a marathon because we thought we got a little reprieve in the spring following our first surge here. Um, and we did have um, significant hot spots where um, we had to set up alternate care sites to support uh, overwhelmed hospitals, hospitals that had to uh, maybe had a 12 bed ICU and suddenly they're transferring out upwards of a hundred patients a week. Um, so we did support them um, with staff and um, and then we had all our fires. So our disasters were compounded and thousands of firefighters came in and they all needed our support. And then of course, in the setting of COVID and uh, precautions. So, and then right, right from the fires, we're now in into this other wave. And actually, I'm heading out to one of our hotspots tomorrow to provide support. But in the meantime, we also have to shore up our hospital systems and our offices and our practices. And so we, I think, are needed. And um, most of us have not had a break. And I think that's the sad part. And to take a break means that another physician or provider is working 24 hours and we just don't do that to each other. So I think it's a real issue. We don't have resiliency in our system um, at all for pulmonary critical care when we're short staffed as it is. And so one thing I'm trying to do, um, which I would have, I wish I would have thought of to do earlier, but we're just putting out fires left and right. Um, pardon the pun on that is um, trying to make our ancillary uh, providers uh, that aren't critically care trained, um, who are responding in alternate care sites with some kind of knowledge um, of critical care. And so I'm using the Fundamentals of Critical Care course, um, and they also have a Fundamentals of Disaster Management. But for this particular effort, um, as Mangala mentioned, it's doing the small things in critical care correctly early on, which prevents morbidity and mortality. And so we have started teaching our CalMAT um, providers and, and, it, and dermatologists have signed up, you know, people who are responding to these sites are, you know, oral surgeons, interventional radiologists, uh, dermatologists, they're coming out to our shelters or in alternate care sites to help people. And those sites are like a med surge unit with everybody's on oxygen up to, you know, five, five liters plus. So they're extending their capacity and they're coming out to help. And so what can we do to give them that knowledge base to make them feel secure and so that they, these patients don't overwhelm ICUs and hospitals. And so um, that's what we're doing here. And it's been well received. And I wish I would have pulled it out sooner um, so that we could start talking about it earlier. 
That's fantastic. Um, Mangal, do you have any other thoughts on this topic? I think this whole idea of the pandemic and the marathon and what you're facing in your next phase is particularly interesting um, and how you're approaching this time, this, this time around. I'm very worried about our staff. I think everyone has been pushed to their limits. No one's had a real vacation now, you know, since February. Um, people are exhausted. Um, people are mentally frustrated that we're back in this situation in New York that we thought we were past. Um, so I'm trying to rally the troops as best I can, but I am definitely concerned that this time around, we know what we're getting into. There isn't that same enthusiasm of we can do this. If this is a battle we can win. It's much more like we're exhausted and, and you know, we're frustrated. Um, so I'm trying to do what I can. We have a bunch of wellness initiatives. We had a, a suicide recently in our, in our health system. So really trying to uh, reach out to people, um, check in on them. We've created a buddy system of just checking in on each other. Um, a lot of critical care doctors are tough people and they don't like to talk about their feelings. Uh, so trying to break those barriers a little bit and just find people to open up to other people um, individually rather than in group settings. Um, doing what we can, it's like the things that we would normally do to decompress, go out for a drink or have dinner together or you know, go to a conference and, and vent. Um, we can't do any of those things. So it's a different time and we have to make adjustments for it. Um, but I am very, that's my top concern. I have the CEO of our health system addressing the critical care group tomorrow to just remind everyone that we're out there for them and that, you know, they have people to turn to. But this is definitely, it's been, we've been going nonstop since uh, February, the end of February. So it's a long time uh, and it's a lot of sick patients and, and we're really seeing a real surge again um, here. So uh, I totally agree. And, and I don't know how else to deal with it. If I, uh, and these resources that we have are not traditional things that, that uh, doctors go to for help. So trying to find ways to reach out to people is really what I'm struggling with. But um, I agree. We're trying to train other providers. Uh, we're trying to, uh, we're doing the FCCS course as well for our large numbers of people just around the New York City area so that we have backup reserves of people who can step in if if people get sick or if people just need some time away from the hospital. Uh, doing what we can to get people out of work and, and doing other things is, is all I can really do to help people get through this. That's great. And you guys are both really working really hard to help the uh, all of us um, uh, in every phase of this. Um, Asha, I know we, you helped a lot with, you're also helping a lot with the transition to the pulmonary world, which is a lot of us are seeing the um, effects of the delayed, um, the delays in outpatient care that happened early part of the pandemic. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that as well, like what you've learned in that piece and uh, any particular lessons there. Um. Yes, and I think um, one, and, it, and we're still learning those lessons, um, that outpatient pulmonologists and outpatient providers, period, did not receive the attention they needed. And that's something I've been, just like Mungo has been waving, I've been waving saying, you guys can't forget this front line, because if we don't shore up the outpatients, because, you know, 80% of the people affected by COVID are, are outpatients, um, but their offices are being shuttered. They have not been, uh, we have no uh, access to ordering the med, uh, PPE um, because those have been diverted to hospitals. And so I, I think that um, there's still a huge gap 
in our outpatient world. Um, many providers are using telemedicine. A lot of primary care offices are still not fully functional or um, at 100%. And now with vaccine coming out and even the um, you know monoclonal antibody treatment, um, they have um, not, those messages have not reached outpatients and or the outpatient community. And how will they access? How will they infuse? How will they distribute? And so I think that's a workforce that um, has been forgotten in this pandemic a little bit. And um, it would be great to harness that energy. Um, and and also the COVID, the chronic COVID care. Um, but we can't keep our workforce, uh, our outpatient workforce operational if they don't have the supplies they need. So I think that's still a huge issue. I mean, I, we're, my staff is going to Home Depot to buy gloves. So we're still, <laughs> we're still in a shortage. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's important. I mean, I think it's a part of this pandemic. It's not just a marathon. I think as Mangala said, it's a marathon. It's not just the critical care, but it's moving beyond that. Um, I think you both have done a great job sort of giving us a lot of important lessons uh, throughout this thing. And one of the things I, uh, I wanted to sort of ask is uh, you both have contributed so much and helped us all around the country sort of deal with this and save lives. And first, I want to thank you for that. But I want to also ask you, like, how are you managing it? I mean, it must be hard for you both at home and professionally to sort of manage all this, to lead and under such intense circumstances. And you're both looked at as role models for many um, women leaders, especially, but also critical care leaders, men and women across the country and around the world. Are there particular aspects of the story and women leadership, uh, particularly that you want to share? Mangala, you, you've had to rise quickly. Um, and so I'm sure that your experiences um, are going to be valuable on this one. Um, I, I think mine is more of a marathon of leadership, um, little bursts. Uh, I probably am guilty of um, seeing everything as a tremendous opportunity. So I have a hard time saying no, because I just always see the opportunity to make things better. Um, uh, I've identified myself as in terms of as a leader, I'm a connector. Uh, that's the role I feel I'm best suited in. And I like to, uh, build everybody up as much as possible, but by doing so, I may not be as effective as I'd like to be in messaging. And I think, that's a challenge for women. When we say something, it's viewed as a suggestion instead of a directive or as anything said with authority. Um, and so then if you're in a Zoom meeting or a boardroom or whatever it is, it then set the statement settles in and then gets repeated by somebody else, usually male. And then it seems like, yeah, what a great idea. And we're like, okay. And the astute members in the uh, meeting will know where, where it originated from. And I think that's still a problem even in this environment, in the pandemic. And I think um, it's okay. I think we just now know how to identify our messaging and how to get the point across. And we're learning how to refine that and 
and how how to relay that um, uh, effectively so that we can get the job done. Um, and so I, I think that's my leadership lesson on this one. And I, I have to thank my uh, colleagues in the military outside everywhere. We all support each other and none of us can have done any anything alone. Um, there are uh, many, many uh, people we've worked with and my I feel guilty that I don't get to always acknowledge everyone as much as I'd like to and so that's my leadership lesson that's beautiful thank you for that Mangla um, I have to say that that I think the there are advantages and disadvantages to being a woman leader I think it's hard because you have I have two teenage kids I have uh, two elderly parents that live with me that I take care of um, so balancing that plus a very busy job um, is difficult. Um, but I also think of it as a gift. Like I get to have all of these aspects of my life um, and enjoy all of them and, and do all of them to the fullest that other people, you know, don't get like that aren't dealing with all of those things. So I think it makes me a richer person. I think it um, each of those aspects of my life um, play into the other. And I think that uh, although it is very stressful and busy and exhausting, um, I'm living life to the fullest. So I, I find that to be a gift rather than a, a burden. Um, I always feel that leading by example is my my downfall. I, I always I never would ask people to do things that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. So I spent a lot of time taking care of critically ill patients during March, April, May and June because I really felt that um, my folks needed to know that, that I was out there with them. Um, critical care doctors respect other critical care doctors. And to me, that was a very important thing that I wasn't hiding from the pandemic at home and putting them out there. So um, I was out there. I learned a lot from doing that. I, I learned what these patients were like and I learned how to take care of them. Um, I did a lot of ECMO during that time um, and, and learned what the, how different ECMO was for the COVID patients. So. Um, a lot of lessons learned. I think it made me a, a better doctor, a better leader. Um, I, let, I learned to deal with scared people that really had no idea what was coming. Um, difficult people. I think being a woman leader, you have to deal with rooms full of non-women leaders that really, um, you know, have been leading forever and don't have any uh, interest in hearing from a new you know, uh, young woman leader, or not so young anymore, but you know what I mean. Um, so I think dealing with that aspect of it was difficult for me uh, going into, uh, it's intimidating. Um, and I think it's, um, but I think when you know the medicine and you know the bedside and you know the critical care people, it brings a lot of respect that, that no one can take away from you, no matter what, who you are, what race you are, or what, you know, gender you are. So um, I had uh, that advantage that I had bedside experience that none of the people in those executive meetings had. So um, don't ever underplay that is what I would say. I think that brings a lot of value to what you're saying um, always. Um, those were my lessons learned. Well, I think you've both given us a lot to reflect on and to be hopeful for. Um, I think uh, we both sort you both sort of said it like a richer life, a more interesting um, experience, human experience. Um, not just male or female gender experience, but actually a much richer uh, 
connection to humanity uh, and all the things that you will both do and contribute to and abso also absorb. So I'm very hopeful for uh, all the things that we talked about, including the better uh, planning, um, the better science, the better treatments, the now the vaccines. We have a, a and even a, a, a woman leader in the White in the White House um, as as vice president uh, during a very critical piece of the pandemic. Um, so I have a lot to be hopeful for. Um, are there things that are, you're hopeful for that you want to share, and that how you look forward to this phase of this and how to get through this? I think that we have elevated critical care to a new place. I think that everyone in the country now knows what an ICU is and what an ICU doctor does. I think the value of critical care uh, will never be questioned again uh, after this. So this, after it's over, will, will, I think, do a lot for the world of critical care and elevate us to a different place. I think lots of research will be put in and, and, and energy and time. I think we'll learn a lot about ventilators and, and COVID and other diseases. So uh, this will uh, escalate and, and propel critical care is what I'm hoping uh, for the future. So I'm very hopeful that once this is past us, that we'll be in a, a very good place um, in, our, in our field of medicine. Thanks, Mangala. Asha? I agree with Mangala on that one. I think I, ever since March, I have been telling every colleague I can, that they are worth their weight in gold in terms of their critical care and pulmonary knowledge. And, um, and I think, I hope society continues to value these hardworking physicians. Um, everyone is hardworking, but I think now they understand the stresses in the ICU. And I really hope that energy will be spent in uh, not stressing those providers further. Um, I, that's my hope is that when this is said and done, we don't go back to business as usual and just pile on more things for folks to do. So um, because I, my fear is, is that um, there will be so many people who are exhausted that they're just going to walk away from um, medicine. And that's, um, so I'm hopeful, um, but there is that slight caveat that um, we may lose um, some valuable um, senior providers who, who still have a lot of mentoring that can be done. I think that's both, you both have given us a lot to think about and a lot to consider. And I want to just want to thank you both so much for your time on this, uh, on this recording, on this podcast uh, for Consultant 360. Uh, I'm, again, I'm Jaspal Singh from uh, Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina uh, with Mangala Narasimran and, uh, and Asha Devereaux. And I just wanted to say that these, uh, both these women leaders are phenomenal and it's great to have them on our first episode of Women Leaders in Critical Care. I think both of them have shown us why they're such fantastic leaders and why there's a lot of hope for um, this, this uh, the whole field of critical care moving forward and all the collaboration, all the leadership and all the different things that we are offering. So uh, with that, thank you, Asha. Thank you, Mangala. Thank you, Jess Paul, for doing this. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you very much.